Hello. Welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture. It is a pleasure to have uh, Artemis Scarlatidou as speaker. The topic of her talk is Designing for Citizen Science in the Global North and South. With UCL preparing to launch a new campus on Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park in Stratford in East London, this lunch hour lecture series brings together speakers to discuss some of the research that will be taking place at the UCL East campus, which will begin opening from September 2022, offering exciting new degrees in cutting edge new UCL schools and centers. Our speaker for today, Artemis Carlatidou, lecturer in citizen science at the Department of Geography, UCL. Artemis is currently a lecturer in citizen science in the Department of Geography at UCL and the People Nature Lab at UCL East. She previously worked as a senior researcher in the Extreme Citizen Science Group at UCL. Her research interest includes critical issues that concern the science of citizen science, risk communication, human-computer interaction, and user experience aspects that should inform the implementation of citizen science, the design and development of geospatial technologies, and their special representations for experts and public use. Artemis is the editor of the book Geographic Citizen Science Design, No One Left Behind by UCL Press. Before we begin, I wanted to let you know that we will have some time at the end uh, for questions, and these can be submitted at any point during the talk by going to Slido. The link is shared with you and entering the event code Citizen Science preceded by a hashtag. I'll now hand over to Artemis. Thank you, Thank you very much, Artemis. Thank you, Katerina. Can you see my screen? Yes, we can. Excellent. Um, so hello, everyone, and thank you, Katerina, again, for the introductions. Uh, I will be talking to you today about citizen science and in specific about designing for citizen science with several examples from the global north and south, emphasizing mainly on the key design features from each example that made that particular project to actually work and be successful. Starting with what is citizen science? So citizen science has been recently defined as the scientific work undertaken by members of the general public, often in collaboration with or under the direction of professional scientists and scientific institutions. For those not very familiar with the field, I would like to briefly say that Citizen science started to become popular in the academic literature between 2004 and 2009. Um, however, citizen science as a practice exists long before the actual professionalization of science. Um, we can all recall when gentlemen such as Charles Darwin and Isaac Newton uh, were making their scientific discoveries without being professional scientists. I would also like to mention that early popular examples of uh, experts relying on volunteers to support scientific research, epitomizing um, in a way the current practice of citizen science, include um, Dr. Mikhail uh, Ostros' ethnopharmacological research project with volunteers across Estonia collecting data of herbarium specimens, 
and uh, Henry Oldenburg's efforts to advance meteorological research through the Smithsonian Weather Project, which included volunteers um, across, I believe, 30 states in the US collecting uh, weather observations. Another thing that I would like to mention for those who are not very familiar with uh, citizen science is that citizen science initiatives may take different forms. For those uh, who would like to understand this more academically, I suggest looking at Hackley's 2013 typology, which taxonomizes citizen science activities based on uh, participants' level of engagement. So here we start from the bottom with crowdsourcing and we move as engagement with participants is more active and involves more stages in the project towards what Hackley calls extreme citizen science at the, at the top. So all I'm going to say about citizen science activities is that this may vary. So for example, for data hungry fields, such as ecology and astronomy, uh, these involve mainly hundreds or even thousands of participants who act as sensors collecting data about specific species, which would be otherwise out of reach of the scientific community. Or they may further involve again hundreds or thousands of participants analyzing some sort of, uh, of data that would otherwise take scientists years uh, to do it themselves. Then we have activities where people from all ages may be involved in some sort of uh, bio-bleach or do-it-yourself citizen science and collect some form of environmental data, for example. Then there are citizen science activities uh, where some hundreds or less uh, participants in collaboration with scientists collect data to address some local issue. For example, last year I worked with young people in East London, where we were trying to understand young people's fear of crime perceptions using some citizen science data. Other examples here may include uh, collecting data about air pollution or noise pollution in local areas to address these issues and ideally influence uh, relevant policymaking. Uh, a growing number of citizen science activities focus also on engaging indigenous, marginalized, and underrepresented communities all over the world. Their purpose is again mainly to support these communities in addressing some sort of uh, local issue and find a solution. It is important uh, to note here that the significant majority of citizen science initiatives focus on Western educated, industrialized, rich and developed contexts. Um, other types of citizen science activities um, uh, though may include people who are textually or technologically literate in areas which are extremely poor, where there is no technological infrastructure such as electricity or internet connectivity and so on. Uh, the successful implementation, therefore, of these initiatives requires a completely different way uh, of thinking and a different approach to their design and implementation. Since this talk is about designing for citizen science, I will now take a step back and look at the role of technology, which defines the way modern citizen science practices are implemented and the way citizen science has been evolved into a field of not only practice, but also scientific theory. Uh, of course, people are the most important social asset uh, within the whole citizen science infrastructure. And then in, there are many projects that uh, use tools which are not necessarily uh, technology-based. 
Um, most frequently, though, modern citizen science infrastructure includes uh, physical kits such as sensors, cameras, uh, telescopes, binoculars, microscopes, and so on. It also includes uh, mobile devices, GPS, and other sensors which support data collection, uh, as well as a whole ecosystem of application databases, interfaces, which all support at the moment hundreds of thousands of people worldwide participating in some sort of citizen science activity. Uh, the fact that hundreds of thousands of volunteers participate in citizen science project is not an exaggeration. Here are two examples from a very popular citizen science project. The first one on the left comes from the eBird project. Um, just to give you a flavor of the numbers that are engaged um, in this project, uh, eBird recruited 800,000 volunteers who collected 169 million uh, observations in 2020 alone, leading, of course, to significant conservation and scientific outputs. Um, and the example on the right-hand side is from another very popular citizen science project called Galaxy Zoo. In a webinar that I hosted a few days uh, ago about the role of citizen science in astronomy, Professor Karen Masters, the PI of the project, mentioned that currently participants, participants submit about 40,000 galaxy classifications daily. It would take astronomers, of course, years to do this kind of work. Um, and other than that, the volunteers have made significant discoveries and many papers have been published from the data collected. <clears throat> the choice of the technological infrastructure, as well as how specific apps are designed to support volunteers, um, influence uh, citizen science participation and this, the overall success of the citizen science initiative. Design decisions are relevant and influence um, who will use the application. For example, is it an application that targets children in specific, older people, uh, where it will be used. Uh, for example, will it be used in the rainforest on a boat while fishing and collecting relevant data? Um, <clears throat> what it will be used for, as well as when it will be used. For example, what are the lighting conditions? Uh, do participants need to wear gloves because of the weather conditions while using the application and so on? As I mentioned in uh, my previous slides, the significant majority of citizen science uh, programs and applications are designed for Western educated, industrialized, rich and developed countries. Um, they're the attract people of different ages, educational backgrounds and interests. And this, of course, has its own uh, massive uh, design challenges. Uh, these challenges refer to making decisions that may, may influence, for example, not only the usability of the application, but also in terms of attracting new audiences or retaining existing volunteers. Um, other challenges may include developing functionality that builds on people's skills and abilities or developing functionality that can support people uh, further in terms of ensuring that the data collection <clears throat> are accurate and of high quality. I can keep going on and on about these challenges, um, but despite the fact that there is a, such a large volume of citizen science applications, there is very little reflection in the academic and non-academic literature about those challenges and the lessons learned from specific contexts of use that may help how we design um, citizen science applications in both the global north and south. So that was the main motivation behind publishing this volume with 
title Geographic Citizen Science Design No One Left Behind, an open access book by UCL Press. And it presents a curated selection of citizen science applications and the focuses on the challenges, um, the design decisions to overcome those challenges, and of course, the methodology that it is being used to support this process. So in the next few slides, I'll give you a flavor of this from some real context, uh, starting with examples from the global north. So the first example that I would like to mention is the Hashiti app, which is a citizen science uh, mobile application created with the aim to address an issue framed by the European environmental policy level uh, as outlined in the European Noise Directive and by the World Health Organization. And this is how to identify and map urban quiet areas so they are protected and nurtured. The conceptual design of the app started in 2008 with an investigation of several mobile citizen science applications that the focus, their focus was on noise pollution. And it was then found that none of them could be used by people to specifically collect data about quiet areas. So Hashiti was created uh, to promote and address, first of all, participation, and in that sense, how to use mobile technology to involve people in the planning and policy process on the topic of noise pollution, uh, to promote science as well, and that is helping scientists to understand what people value uh, when they search for quietness in cities, uh, promote policy, um, and validating the participatory methodology to identify and map quiet areas in cities so as to protect them. And finally, to promote health and well being, and that is help people to more easily find places to recover from the sensory overload. Uh, and as you can see from the figure on the left, the users first record a 30 seconds audio recording, then the app calculates the sound pressures level. Then volunteers take a picture of the quiet area. And finally, they complete the questionnaire, which consists of 20 questions. And on the right, you can see the web-based interface, which shows uh, the data collected across the world. So what are some key design decisions and features for Hashiti app? Uh, for the design of the app, a user-centered design approach was used. Uh, the creators the developers started the journey of conceptual design during a session at the European Citizen Science Association conference, uh, from which they built a set of personas to represent potential target audiences, uh, such as scientists, um, local authorities, activist groups, and so on. Um, user feedback mechanisms were developed at various stages, uh, which have been also used to uh, shape the way the app looks and functions at the moment. The first version of the mobile app was introduced in 2017. And then in 2018, an improved version uh, was released together with a web-based interface to show uh, the data that it is collected uh, across the world while the mobile data supports on in-situ um, data collection. Um, I would like to mention here that many citizen science applications follow a similar approach. And when they do not do that, usually people ask for it. Um, some key features of the app that I would like to mention uh, here include, uh, first of all, the Hashiti Ambassador feature, which is a rewarding mechanism to motivate, uh, motivate uh, users and retain participation. Uh, so how the feature works, uh, when the users uh, map and serve uh, quiet areas, they enter a list of Hashiti Ambassador, 
uh, which is updated monthly. And at the end of the month, uh, users get a pop-up message notifying them that they have been notified, they've been nominated as Hashity Ambassador of uh, CTX. And then they can choose whether they want to have their name featured in the uh, Hashity's uh, uh, monthly newsletter and on the Hashity Ambassador webpage. And this is also a key feature that it is now also commonly used across many other citizen science applications uh, that are mainly used in the global north. Another key feature is the localizer icon, which indicates the user's position on the map while they're using the app. Um, this is particularly important for the use of spatial interfaces and in terms of helping the user to navigate the map and also help with data collection and in terms of improving uh, the quality of the data collected. Um, what the developers found from the feedback uh, they received and how they informed, how that informed redesign and improvements. So first of all, from the data they were collecting, they found that there are two distinct groups of users. One session uh, users who installed the app um, to only use it once or perhaps for testing it and long-term users who would use the app on a regular basis. Again, this is a pattern uh, in line with trends that emerge in mainstream citizen science projects in the global north. Another feature that is um, uh, that the developers found from the feedback is that um, hashi the users almost never share the data that they collect on any social media. Um, However, this function is embedded in the mobile and web-based versions of the app. And um, the, the developers are thinking uh, of designing, um, redesigning these features in order to encourage its use, which is surprising. Um, another very important finding was that the majority of uh, user experience problems were related to unstable and unreliable internet access. This is something we face a lot in the global south, as you can imagine, where the technological infrastructure is limited or does not exist. And the general solution to that is giving the users the option to collect data offline and upload them later when internet uh, connection is established. Um, the last very interesting uh, feature that I would like to share is that Hashiti app has a questionnaire with 20 questions that is mandatory during data collection. From the feedback developers uh, they got, they realized that users find the questionnaire too long and some of them, they find it annoying because they cannot skip any questions. So for every data point uh, you submit, you have to go through this very long set of questions um, which are all really related to the science uh, behind uh, collecting the data. To make sure the app contributes to science, the developers thought they would ignore user feedback and they would still make replying to the question mandatory so as to collect uh, consistent data which can be used for research purposes. Um, the second example I would like to mention is the Global Forest Watch platform, which aims to provide information that it is essential to monitor and manage uh, forest sustainability at a global scale. The web-based platform shows in almost real time how forests uh, forest are changing through time. It is a very sophisticated system in terms of its analysis functionality. Our data comes from several official sources and it looks uh, very similar to more sophisticated geographic information systems. 
The Forest Watcher app on the left uh, was designed so that people with limited internet connectivity can still access the data and submit uh, photos and comments about deforestation and also collect specific types of data when this is required and said uh, by the project admins. <clears throat> this project followed to a user-centered design approach to directly feed into the development, um, into, into integrating user requirements and user preferences, as well as lessons learned from yeah, user behavior analysis uh, from Google Analytics. Um, and there is an extensive list of personas that were developed to capture key requirements and characteristics of a very broad network uh, of stakeholders and potential users. Also, um, methods such as interviews, uh, Google Analytics, which I mentioned, usability testing, uh, feedback from prototypes and surveys uh, were used. As with the Hashiti uh, example uh, and many other citizen science applications that exist, here too there is a mobile app and a web-based interface. A key feature which was a response to user requirements was a dashboard that alerts people uh, about what's happening in a particular area they're interested in. And this feature is accompanied with high quality satellite imagery uh, which users can use to um, uh, verify the accuracy of the alert that they receive. Another key feature is a needs and a user requirement for easy data uh, access. Um, as in the ability to be able to reuse data from the platform to other sources. Uh, we know a lot of citizen science pro pro programs that try to do this and integrate the data that are being collected into some sort of national or international databases. Uh, together with uh, an ability to extract data, uh, an API is provided here, which can be you can be can be reused. And notably, um, if the fifteen percent of the overall time users spent uh, looking at the data was through a different website. And specific, uh, if I remember well, in two thousand eighteen, uh, people spent about nine thousand eight hundred hours looking at the global uh, forest uh, watch maps on other websites. The majority of the data at the moment concentrates on the US and Europe, and therefore it is not surprising that an increasing number of users have started to submit data, for example, showing protected areas and other characteristics in other countries and more uh, remote geographic regions. Some of the key challenges the developers mention uh, that their users face include, uh, again, unreliable internet access or slow speeds, uh, which are particularly problematic with loading these large map tiles and high quality satellite imagery and so on. Considering that the majority of the users are located uh, in the global north, um, this shows that although there is much more sophisticated infrastructure to meet these needs, this is still very uh, problematic, especially uh, in areas further away from the urban centers. Uh, the second challenge um, that I would like to mention is that Global Forest Watch is, as I said, a much more sophisticated application compared to the most uh, common citizen science application with support visualization only, as with the Haas City um, example that I mentioned before. Uh, to deal with this, the team has implemented the principle of progressive disclosure. Uh, when users first use the application, um, some features are hidden so that they are not over overwhelmed, and these show up as they become more familiar with the interface and explore its capabilities. 
The last example from the Global North that I would like to mention is the OGOC app. As I explained in the beginning, citizen science may take different forms. Uh, in fact, at the lower levels of Hackley's typology, we have projects where people participate as censors. And participation here is uh, limited to the provision of resources and the cognitive engagement is minimal. An example of that uh, is the Cyclist GOC mobile app where volunteers share the location data and trip movements to support cycling research and uh, policymaking. Cyclists use the app to collect information about their trip and through uh, semantic tags, they describe their experience. Um, there are 30 predefined uh, tags that users can uh, select from to describe its uh, trip. And by analyzing these tags, researchers can understand how users perceive the cycling environment. The aim of this app is to identify cycling frictions and also the kind of infrastructural or design improvements that are needed to address uh, these frictions. Um, the app attracted the attention of advocacy groups um, and the particular chapter from the, from the book, it focuses on testing the app in three areas in Munster, Germany, Valletta in Spain, and sorry, Valletta in Malta, Castello in Spain. I would like to emphasize here on a set of elements that are unique to the context, uh, to this particular context of citizen science um, and how the app is being utilized. So the first one uh, is the gamification element, which has been examined in other citizen science contexts. And we know that it doesn't always work since the motivations of volunteers in citizen science are very different. Uh, what has inspires people and aspires people to participate is not some sort of competition, but usually things such as contribution, contributions to science, uh, environmental sustainability, um, and so on. Um, Nevertheless, um, here there is a feature of collaboration and competition, which received very positive feedback. And users also suggested um, additional rewards based, for example, on topography. Um, that is getting points for uh, cycling on steeper slopes and so on. Uh, reminders here, uh, too, was a feature that users expected to see, as it was uh, easy to forget uh, recording a trip. And the third one I would like to mention is privacy. Um, how did the users uh, react to the app collecting personal data in the background? People in Germany were very suspicious, but those in Valletta and Castello did not have uh, any concerns and they even opted in for an automatic recording. That is, they did not have to start or stop any recording manually. So we can see here an important, important cultural difference which influences how citizen science apps like GOC are perceived and eventually how uh, they will be used, if at all, by people in different countries. Um, to understand how extreme citizen science is being utilized in the global uh, south, I will refer to extreme citizen science, um, which is at the top level of uh, existing citizen science hierarchies. Um, again, based on the criteria of how much people are involved in this process. I worked in this area quite extensively, being part of the extreme citizen science group at UCL, and I would like to showcase you some of this uh, work. So let's start by explaining what is extreme citizen science. Extreme citizen science is a philosophy of situated bottom-up initiatives, which take into account the local needs, practices, 
and cultures to work with broad networks of people to design and build new devices and knowledge creation processes which can transform the world. As you can see, extreme citizen science case studies take place in different parts of the world, and I will now introduce um, some of them. I will start with uh, Congo Brazzaville. Uh, Benjeli Yakapigmis of Northern Congo Brazzaville experienced for years an unprecedented exploitation of their local uh, forest natural resources. In order to support local communities and in collaboration with local NGOs, Apelli was developed in 2013, and it is used since then with non-literate people to collect data about illegal logging and poaching in the area. Uh, the vision uh, of local or organizations which collaborated in the project was that uh, the data being collected would provide the necessary evidence to report logging companies' behavior, and which would subsequently inform um, the new EU forest law enforcement governance and trade legislation. Um, the second example comes from Brazil. The Pantanal is the largest wetland in the world. It boasts a wide and uh, very unique biodiversity and local fishers are directly dependent on it for their daily livelihood. Um, legislation for resource management and consumption in any area, including uh, the Pantanal, follows usually the scientific recomm recommendations of conservation biologists, which assume that people are fixed in time and space. In Pantanal, it was such legislation that did not take into account indigenous practices and gradually led into people's physical and economic displacement. So Sapelli is being used with local communities in the area since 2014, uh, who collect data about the use of natural resources, mainly fishing and their strategies. The data collected uh, provided evidence that indigenous practices are indeed sustainable. And as a result of that, local people have been officially recognized as a traditional community, and that gave them the right to use their traditional practices uh, in the ways they rely on natural resources for their daily livelihood. Uh, in Kenya, Sapelli is being utilized since early 2019, a narrow country, and it is used with Maasai warrior communities. One of the greatest threats they face is the loss of their traditional ecological knowledge and the increased deforestation um, in the Maasai Mara National Reserve. Uh, Sapelli is therefore used to assist them in collecting and recording traditional ecological knowledge related to indigenous plants. And I would like to mention that within a few hours after the initiative was launched, uh, individuals gathered over 100 data items, and since then they've collected thousands of coins with information about the medicinal properties uh, of the local indigenous flora. And my last example uh, comes from Cameroon. Since August 2016, Baka communities in Cameroon collect data to tackle wildlife crime and for animal monitoring. Cameroon is one of the last places uh, on earth uh, where a great uh, diversity of megafauna exists in the wild, but unfortunately uh, it is being very rapidly depleted by the wild illegal uh, wildlife trade and extractive industries. And many Baka communities uh, feel a great sense of injustice towards external uh, wildlife tra traffickers pillaging forest resources, and therefore they express the desire to be involved in tackling such activity. Um, 
to do that at the moment they collect data at the geographic uh, region of roughly 1000 square kilometers. I want to mention that the data being collected here can be extremely sensitive and also has significant implications in terms of accidentally exposing participants details uh, which would even put their lives at risk. Uh, you should already suspect by now that the challenges we face here are very different um, from how citizen science is being applied in the previous examples. First of all, it involves people from various cultural contexts, people who face completely different political and economic challenges, people who have different trust concerns, especially when it comes to getting engaged and participating in these type of projects. And that requires using methods such as thorough um, FP, could free prior informed consent process, establishing community protocols to guide how the project is implemented, anthropological research, the use of ethnographic methods and participatory design. Um, the second key of challenges I would like to mention is that extreme citizen science takes place in areas where literacy cannot be taken for granted. Uh, most of the users are low literate. This include people who don't read or, uh, or write either uh, by choice or by chance and people who can write uh, or read uh, with difficulty. We also work with people who have limited or no experience in interacting with digital technologies, including smartphones, um, access to technological infrastructure, electricity, internet, and so on. This creates several challenges for us, and we therefore need to find ways to use technologies in a ways that helps overcome these digital divides. Um, here is the main tool that we're using. Uh, it is called Sapali Collector. It is an Android-based application which uses a hierarchical architecture and pictorial icons to support data collection. And as you can see, it's free from any text. Uh, the pictorial icons are co-designed with the communities to ensure that the communities recognize them. Um, while they collect the data, uh, people can take um, can select one category and then uh, go into the next level, uh, select another category item, uh, take uh, a picture um, and or an audio recorded, um, and then upload the data. Um, Here is an, another example of the same project, which shows how pictures are usually drawn in the field as part of a participatory design process. As you can see, the icons uh, are hand-drawn images in Cameroon. And here is another example of uh, Sapelli Collector in Brazil. Um, the same concept, the same process and tools apply here too. What I would like to point out is the participants in that region are very much exposed to photorealistic digital imagery uh, as their communities are either not completely isolated um, from those or they travel to nearby locations where they do get to see um, some high quality uh, visual imagery. That resulted in asking us to replace all initially hand-drawn icons with scientific illustrations of fish species that they were collecting uh, data for, because they thought that the hand-drawn images that are used in other projects were look, look so uh, too childish uh, for them. Some people in the field occasionally have difficulties interacting with Sapelli, as you can imagine. Research generally demonstrates that the literate people have generally uh, some difficulty in navigating hierarchical interfaces. And the figures of some 
of the participants are too rough to interact smoothly with a touchscreen device. For that reason, we also designed an app called Sap and Map. Sap and Map is a smartphone application accompanied by a set of cards equipped with near field communication technology. Each uh, card has an icon printed on one side to visualize the data um, that they uh, collect. And the process of tapping and mapping it is essential that the user stands as close as possible to the actual location of the physical object that it is being mapped uh, so that the device reads and records its accurate location through the GPS sensor. So people carry a phone with them uh, for its GPS sensor and the set of cards that they use to collect uh, the data. The only interaction with the phone is simply tapping the NFC, NFC card at the back of the phone and the coordinates of the particular object object are automatically uh, added based on where the user stands. One of the most common user requirements we have had um, from various communities was that they wanted to see instantly the data that they were collecting. Uh, in the beginning, when running these projects, the researcher in the field every now and then would collect people's data and put it on a mapping interface as shown on the left hand side. Um, but we just developed and tested in the field uh, the app on the right, which is called Sapelli Viewer, where people can see the data that they collect instantly. Um, although I have to say that people have never used the map before, they respond very well to the satellite imagery shown in the background and then data that they collect on top of it. Uh, last but not least, I would like to conclude with a study that I ran a few years ago, which summarizes what we know about volunteers' expectations and requirements from citizen science applications. Uh, this study is based on a systematic review of the literature, which discusses how people interact with applications using uh, 1,045 keyword combinations um, and three databases, and finally extensively reviewing uh, 62 papers. Many of the points here um, are also evident in the various case studies that are included um, in the Geographic Citizen Science uh, Design No One Left Behind book, and uh, which I presented in the previous slides. Just to note that the list of guidelines that I'm going to show you is much more extensive in you have a look at the actual paper, but I only have the time today to mention just a few. The first guideline refers to basic features. Um, it is surprising how frequently the people who design uh, these applications, um, especially those that target participants in the global north, they try to introduce new names for otherwise very well-known features. Uh, for example, I have seen talks uh, being used instead of forum, and people do not really know what to expect from these uh, unconventional terminologies. So it is very important to try as much as possible to minimize the learning curve and follow popular name conventions. Another one which I would like to mention is registration. An increasing number of citizen science applications are trying um, to are, try, are trying nowadays to implement a quick sign up process using social media uh, accounts. That is not something that users usually prefer. A surprising 60% uh, of users prefer to participate in a project without registration at all. Then we have the communication functionality where people especially uh, like to participate in forums, uh, to talk and meet other volunteers and use taxon maps so that they can add comments about the data collected by the entire community. With respect to data collection functionality, we showed that both in the global north and south, providing real-time data collection while being able to instantly view the data collected are 
absolutely essential. Uh, privacy is a very significant issue for especially sensitive data, such as the data that extreme citizen science projects uh, collect. Sometimes, as I mentioned, the volunteer's life can be put at risk if these data are accidentally exposed, uh, or the whole community may be at risk if they simply feel they do not want, for whatever reasons, to share the data that, are, uh, that they are collecting. It is very important, therefore, to take into account these user concerns, support data um, anonymization, and also protect users, if necessary, with app-specific uh, passwords. Uh, for the data processing and visualization, I already mentioned the importance of being able to view uh, data being collected instantly. When a map is used to um, a symbol to show the user where they are located where, while they collect the data is absolutely necessary for both people who are map literate and uh, map illiterate, especially for the latter uh, who would not be able to navigate the map easily to record an item based on uh, the location they are standing at. Gamification is another big one that attracted quite some research in citizen science. Perhaps it is more important for those projects that are lower in the citizen science hierarchies, more like crowdsourcing pro projects rather than projects that engage, for example, people to solve uh, real issues. Generally, a suggestion is not to make these features mandatory or entirely rely on gamification to attract volunteers. Uh, privacy, as I said, is uh, important, especially for applications using the global uh, north. Features such as moderation, filtering are uh, very important there. Uh, last but not least, we've seen that all examples I have shown you today use some sort of co-design, and this um, is, in my opinion, the main reason for their success. A co-design process can help um, not only shape the project, uh, shape the interface in the way that it makes sense to people, but it can also help realize whether alternative solutions should be developed, like the tap and map example I mentioned, which better match um, local cultural context and the needs of participants. And before I close my today's talk, uh, I would like to let anyone interested in citizen science that UCL at UCL East will be launching a new master's degree in citizen science from September 2022. It is the first and only one at a global scale, so would be delighted uh, to see you applying for it. Uh, the deadline is the end of June, and we have two routes, uh, giving the option to people with working experience but no previous qualifications to still apply. And you will find more information on UCL's website um, and instructions um, of how to apply to the course. Thank you. Wonderful timing and more importantly, very inspiring talk, Artemis. Congratulations. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Do you have some time for us to ask questions? Can mm -hmm. I? invite the audience to use uh, Slido. You see Slido link um, on your YouTube channel. Let me ask really quick questions currently there. So exciting research, Artemis. Uh, tell us about the connection between 
the research outputs, what drives extreme citizen science research beyond data collection? What's next? Well, these are, yeah, great question. Um, there are many drivers, <laughs> uh, of course. Uh, we have a whole bunch of researchers and uh, each one is uh, kind of like driven by their motivations and so on. I would, I would like to emphasize what I think is one of the most important. Um, <clears throat> citizen science takes place at a point in time when many people recognize that Western beliefs about techno-scientific innovation, top-down approaches, and excluding uh, communities from the broader sustainability agenda and the broader sustainability debate are highly problematic. I have watched uh, at some point a video from the World Economic Forum where the president of the Association uh, for Indigenous Women and People of Chad, uh, Mrs. Hindu Omari Ibrahim said, was saying that her grandmother is the best technology because she can predict the weather um, without a cell phone, without internet. She could predict the weather just by observing the wind direction, birds migration, trees flower and so on. Uh, and she was uh, arguing that this technology can protect your people and protect your ecosystem. Um, I think it is uh, this reali realization and plenty of evidence from our and other projects that resulted um, in citizen science getting increased uh, attention uh, for the purposes of collecting and analyzing traditional ecological knowledge, which recognized with indigenous communities for millennia, as well as uh, other types of environmental data. And this is um, very much in line with uh, extreme citizen science and what we try to capture, the data we try to capture, collect and analyze with local people and their communities. Um, the vision is to empower communities and individuals in any, a, a, any part of the world, uh, no matter what is the people's background, literacy skills, expertise, um, when it comes to technology and so on. Very well, thank you. As we collect questions from you on Slido, Artemis, you, you work on citizen science, but I'm sure you know other terms that uh, are used, uh, either synonyms or similar yeah. terms like participatory science, community science. Would you like to position yourself and explain how citizen science is different and if it is different? Thank you. Thank you for this question, Katerina. I think it is one we get very frequently. Um, and although I did my PhD on the broader field of public engagement and therefore have extensively reviewed this part of the literature, sometimes I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Um, the, anyways, the, the conclusion I kind of draw is that uh, they are different ter terms used in, that are being used to convey most of the time the same or very similar ideas. Um, the term citizen science has found wider reach and uh, uses, I believe. For example, most open science frameworks at national and European levels talk about citizen science. Uh, so we see the term currently being used more frequently. And the other thing is that as I explained in my talk, there are different types of citizen science. So although for those higher up, um, in terms of how close scientists work with the participants, we might have an overlap with uh, community or participatory science. And in a similar way, those at the lower levels might have a resemblance of uh, what people call crowd science or civic science or uh, volunteer monitoring or other terms that are being used for which uh, I'm not aware of. Thank you.
first there is one more question from the public. Can I, can I allow myself to ask something? Because we, you, you started your talk, uh, which is about uh, Global North and Global South, by mentioning your research on citizen science in crime situations. So would you like to elaborate on that and tell us the impact of the citizen science research that you did in, in London yeah. about this under uh, underrepresented uh, and hazardous community, because this is also connected to the social purpose, right, of citizen science. Yes, thank you so much, Katerina. Um, that was a pilot project, a smaller like one year project, but it is uh, a very strong and very close to my heart. Um, the, the young people that I worked with from three colleges in East London, they were very passionate about doing something about to change the situation of knife crime and how sometimes how much scared they feel with their local areas so we had great participation numbers we had a lot of people uh, who were even outside the age range that they would come to the workshop to encourage younger people to to engage into the project and that was because they were ex-gang members and they wanted to help people not be part of that culture um, it was uh, as i said a pilot project so we were collecting fear of crime data um, in east london uh, together with, um, you know, when we were discussing the feelings of people, uh, I do hope that I will apply soon for further funding uh, to extend this research into, you know, a proper uh, like three years or even longer research project and have the opportunity because uh, for people in London, youth violence and knife crime is a huge uh, issue. So I would love to have the opportunity to, to be able to change that um, under the guidance of the young people themselves and also try together with them to identify a way to, to, to re-establish trust in policing by being able to put the police and young people on the same table to discuss their needs and uh, accommodate them subsequently. A visionary dimension of your research. Congratulations, Artemis. Uh, engagement in citizen science, what stays from your research? What stays in participants' minds and attitudes after collecting, observing, and helping scientists in a citizen science project? What is your understanding of the impact on personal trajectories of the participants? That really depends uh, from project to, and like to project, the duration. Um, I would like to talk specifically about the extreme citizen science projects in the global south. Um, we do have there, uh, we, as I mentioned in my talk, uh, one of the methodological elements that we use, methods that we use, is ethnographic research. And we do have anthropologists who stay in the field for more than a year uh, sometimes, and they really connect with the community. So all I'm going to say is what I know from them who are still, like some of them, they finished their project, they left the area, uh, but they are all in touch with these people. And, um, and, uh, and I think that the fact that um, most of the projects that started back even in 2013, 2014, they are all keep going. It means that um, people really believe in what they do and they're very, you know, serious about it. Uh, 
Thank you very much. I invite the audience to ask questions on Slido, please. Another question is about other initiatives that you may know about Global South in the periphery of citizen science, and again, for a social purpose, if you have any news to share. Um, that's another very good question. Thank you. Um, obviously, I'm not aware of every single citizen science uh, participatory or community science initiative which takes place in the Global South. Um, I have recently collaborated um, with a few researchers from 15 organizations, actually, that all work in similar contexts to somehow try to identify and structure the, the challenges we all face, the strategies we employ to solve them, and the kind of impacts that we generate. Um, and that included uh, projects focusing on climate change, such as Lishan, um, a project in Cambodia protecting forests with local communities, which is called Prelang, um, Green Care Cameroon, SIDACT uh, doing work to protect the Babila Elephant Sanctuary, uh, Sarah Dumar Participatory Ethnobotany, uh, the Palestinian Institute of uh, Biodiversity and Sustainability. Uh, the International uh, Work Group for Indigenous Affairs, and many others. And um, they, like it was, it was, we did a series of workshops to discuss, as I said, uh, our challenges. And it was, um, it was uh, so surprising, not really, but um, we did not expect to find so many similarities in the challenges that we're facing. And a lot of them, of course, are related to the political and economic characteristics of the geographic context that uh, this type of research practices uh, take place. But a lot, a lot, a lot of the issues um, were referring to technological um, challenges, uh, challenges around privacy, uh, data issues, um, and so on. Thank you very much, Artemis. We have answered all questions. I would like to congratulate you once more for your inspiring research. And thank you very much, all the participants, for staying with us. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much, Katerina. And thank you, UCLEs, for organizing this talk.